You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All comments are current at the time of publication. It's a podcast that's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row. And this edition is presented by Emma-Louise Fenelon. Welcome back, LawPod UK listeners. It's been some time since we looked at inquest law on the podcast, and following a number of significant recent developments, we thought the time was ripe for an update. I'm delighted to have here with me Rory Badenoch and Raj Kiran Barhe, both of One Crown Office Row, to provide you with a whistle-stop tour of those need-to-know judicial findings and must-read cases. Rory and Kieran, you're both very welcome. Hi, Emma. Hi, Emma. Jumping in with one, if not the most significant case in the last 12 months, Morahan and His Majesty's Coroner for West London, which deals with the enhanced investigative duty under Article 2 and was recently considered by the Court of Appeal. Rory, can you tell listeners what the case was about? Yes, and the Court of Appeal unanimously upheld the decision of the Divisional Court in this case, and I think it's fair to say that the Court of Appeal didn't add much to the analysis of the Divisional Court in their decision. It's always useful to have a case in which the key principles of a, a practical point are, are concisely set out, and uh, the judgment of the Divisional Court is one of those cases. But uh, as to the facts, as a young lady, Tanya Morahan, who had a history of paranoid schizophrenia and harmful cocaine use, and she was detained under Section 3 of the Mental Health Act in a, an inpatient rehab unit in mid-May 2018. And that Section 3 order was rescinded at the end of June 2018. So, importantly, she was no longer a detainee. And then on the afternoon of the 3rd of July 2018, with the doctor's agreement, she left the ward but didn't return. And sadly... On the 9th of July 2018, she was found dead following an apparently accidental recreational drug overdose. In terms of what happened at the inquest, the coroner found that Article 2 was not engaged and a judicial review it, it ensued. And the divisional court, Lord Justice Popperwell, handing down the leading judgment, gave a detailed and careful analysis of both domestic and Strasbourg case law concerning both the operational duty imposed by Article 2 of the Convention, and that's to take positive measures to protect an individual whose life is at risk in certain circumstances, and also the parasitic procedural or investigative duty which arises when a death occurs in circumstances where it appears that one or other of the substantive obligations has been or may have been violated and appears that agents of the state are or may be in some way implicated. So in terms of why this case is important, well, really it just sets out a really careful analysis of the practical points for practitioners to consider. So if you've got a voluntary psychiatric patient death, this is a good place to start to find out whether or not Article 2 is engaged. So it's probably worth me setting out the summary of the concise points that were made as far as I'm able to. So regarding the positive operational duty, the court set out in position as follows. Firstly, it's relevant to the existence of the operation duty to consider whether there is a real and immediate risk to life. Secondly, the operation duty will not arise in relation to all voluntary psychiatric patients. And to break that down a little bit more, 
there may be some voluntary psychiatric patients such as Melanie Raybone and those familiar with this area will hopefully be familiar with that case. But patients such as Melanie Raybone are considered to be indistinguishable from detained patients. And so the duty will arise. But equally, there'll be others whose circumstances are basically akin to a, an outpatient who don't even come close to meeting the criteria for detention. And then thirdly, the existence of the operational duty is not to be analysed solely by reference to the relationship between the state and the individual, but also by reference to the type of harm of which the individual is foreseeably at real and immediate risk. So what the Divisional Court did is look into this and say, well, look, in cases where people are cared for by an institution which exercises control, the question of whether an operational duty is owned to protect them from a foreseeable risk of a particular type of harm is informed by whether the nature of the control is linked to the nature of the harm. So in relation to prisoners, the nature of the control exerted by a prison increases the risk of suicide. Therefore, prisons have an obligation to protect detainees against the risk of suicide. So too in the case of a detained mental patient where the detention gives rise to an increased risk of suicide whatever the nature of the mental condition being treated. But by contrast, a psychiatric hospital would owe no duty to protect a patient, voluntary or detained, from the risk of accidental death from a road traffic accident whilst on unescorted leave. The court then turned to the enhanced investigative duty and they set out that this duty arises in two circumstances. The first is when it appears that there may have been a violation of a substantive obligation under Article 2. And secondly, in some cases, this arises automatically. So killings by state agents, suicides in custody, uh, unlawful killings in custody, suicides of conscripts, suicides of in involuntary mental health detainees. That's all automatic. So in these automatic cases, there is always a sufficiently arguable breach of the state's substantive obligation because of the nature and circumstances of the death. Um, but what Lord Justice Popperwell observed was that in reality, there's no difference in terms of the rationale between the two circumstances. It's just in the case of the automatic requirement, the case will always and without more give rise to a legitimate suspicion of state responsibility in the form of a breach of the state's substantive article two duties. So that's the framework that was set out there. And it's, a, as I said, I've probably gone on a bit too long, but it's a really good and useful place to start and go to because, you know, you're often, as practitioners, find themselves asking that question of, oh, gosh, you know, I know the Ray Bone case. I've got a voluntary patient who's died. Where do I start with the Article 2 question? And, and this case will really help to set that out for you. Rory, can you tell us then what happened in terms of how that was applied in Tanya's case? Yes. Yeah, so in Tanya's case, the court concluded and the Court of Appeal agreed that no operational duty was owed to protect her against the risk of accidental death by the recreational taking of an illicit drug. In short, none of the factors identified in the Melanie Raybone case was fulfilled. So firstly, there was no real and immediate risk of death from a cause of which the trust was or ought to have been aware. And breaking that down, there was no history to suggest a suicide risk. There was no history of accidental overdose. And there was no foreseeable real and immediate risk of overdose by opiate abuse. And that's what killed her. 
Uh, secondly, there was no assumption of responsibility by the trust. So the trust had not assumed responsibility for treatment for drug addiction of a life-threatening nature. So her mental health condition was not linked to the harm, which it was argued there was a duty to protect against as foreseeable, namely uh, accidental death from recreational drug overdose. And thirdly, Tanya was not particularly vulnerable in the sense relevant to the duty. Now, she was obviously vulnerable in a sort of more obvious sense in terms of being a paranoid schizophrenic with a history of drug use, but the Strasbourg jurisprudence refers to the vulnerability of mental patients in the context of suicide risk, which is to be understood as a vulnerability to suicide, and that wasn't present or relevant here. And, and finally, her risk was not exceptional. It was an ordinary one. In other words, it was a risk to which she was exposed in the same way as any other recreational drug user, irrespective of her status as an inpatient. Uh, and the Divisional Court and, and the Court of Appeal made it very clear that there is no automatic enhanced investigative duty in the case of an accidental death of a voluntary psychiatric patient. And that's because voluntary psychiatric patients can't be treated in the same way as an involuntary detainee. Their circumstances vary in different cases and require a fact a specific inquiry of this extent to which the residence as an inpatient is truly voluntary. And they said that there's no justification for extending the automatic duty to cases of accidental death. So it's a very useful place to begin your own investigation. I agree with you entirely that the Court of Appeals analysis doesn't add a huge amount, but what I thought was interesting about it was the reference or the underlining by the court that an inquest ought not to be a surrogate public inquiry and some of the language about how inquests and in particular judicial reviews concerning inquests brought over the last few years have sought to perhaps expand what might be considered an Article 2 duty in terms of the enhanced investigative obligation. And I think the Court of Appeal seems to want to pour some cold water on any of those aspirations. Yeah, it seems like this might be a sign of things to come. They explicitly stated this is not a surrogate public inquiry and they are overtly <laughs> commenting on uh, lengthy delays in the hearing of inquests and escalation of costs. This is something obviously they want to stamp down and obviously we're seeing lots of these cases, hence we're having this podcast on it. But that was a, a clear indication from the Court of Appeal as to their approach going forward, I think. Well, next up, an issue that will be familiar to anyone who has had to gently remind an opponent that a particular question has already been asked and answered a number of times, and that is adversarial questioning. Listeners may be aware that concerns about the adversarial nature of some inquest proceedings led the Law Society and the Bar Standards Board to introduce guidelines for all those appearing in coroner's courts, and the chief coroner has encouraged his colleagues to be vigilant in ensuring that those before them are meeting the expected standards. But what of a coroner who adopts an adversarial approach, you may ask? Well, the court was faced with this very issue in WEN, which is spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N, and assistant coroner for Inner West London. And Kieran is going to tell us about why this case is interesting. Yes, so this inquest arose out of the death of a baby who very sadly died when he was only a few days old 
from what was initially thought by the clinicians treating him to be sepsis leading to shock and cardiac arrest. The trust conducted an internal investigation process and produced a serious untoward incident report, an SUI report, and that report made a number of criticisms of the care that was provided to the baby in question. And that report was authored by an individual called Dr. Davies. The hearing concerned an application for a fresh inquest and the allegation that the coroner herself had overstepped the mark by raising unduly pressurising questions that at times amounted to speeches during her own assertive questioning of this key witness, Dr. Davies. And it was suggested that these questions revealed a pro-doctor bias. And the court, in its judgment, it set out a few of the questions that the coroner asked Dr. Davies, and I'd encourage you to go back and have a look at them if this is something that's arisen in a case or that you're interested in. And the court went on to say, paragraph 111 said, I've sought to set out several extracts from the transcripts in order to give the flavour of some of the assistant coroner's questioning in this case. Here I am focusing primarily on the question of Dr. Davies. It cannot be denied that some of the questions were too assertive, amounting to the setting out of propositions rather than questions, and or involved several questions and not one, making it difficult for the witness to answer. Furthermore, there is some force in the submission that the assistant coroner was already sceptical of the correctness of the SUI report before Dr Davies began to testify. That might have made it difficult for Dr Davies to stand up for herself. The court ultimately concluded that although the coroner's approach didn't justify a fresh inquest on the grounds of apparent bias alone, it did note that the coroner's manner of questioning of a witness was close to the borderline between robustness and unacceptability. So an interesting judgment, some interesting comments from the court there. As I said, I think if this is something that has arisen, I would encourage you to go back and read the questions put by the coroner. But certainly when I read it, the sort of questions that I saw which had been answered were not unfamiliar to me in terms of what I'd experienced in court before. Nora and I think Rory and I had a discussion about this before we started recording and both of us have been in the unfortunate position of having to decide how much we want to test a coroner in terms of reminding the coroner of their duty to put questions rather than propositions. Yeah, the situation does arise as arisen in my experience. I have to confess it's, it's more common uh, I think to encounter coroners whose questioning is perhaps more superficial than overly robust. But um, uh, you know, my, my feeling generally is that, provided it doesn't overstep the mark, where a coroner has formed an opinion in advance and that opinion informs his or her questioning, I tend to see it as a positive sign that the coroner has read the papers and is conducting a thorough investigation, even if I don't agree with the line that's taken. I have, as you say, and I have had a couple of occasions where a coroner has asked lengthy and direct questions of bereaved family members with with apparently little or no sympathy for their feelings. And this is a, a rarity, but it does present that age-old problem for an advocate as to whether to interject and complain and invariably upset the coroner, <laughs> who will almost certainly not agree with any objection or allow the witness to deal with the questions without interjection in an attempt to sort of keep the coroner on side, so to speak, although there's no side in the inquest. But it is difficult, and obviously you prefer not to be put in that position. Some coroners are more prone to it than others. But, you know, I think generally my impression is that if they have formed an opinion, it may not be a bad thing because it at least shows they've read the papers and are taking it seriously. 
I haven't come across that sort of questioning of a family member, but certainly on the other side of things, acting for interested persons and witnesses who turn up and are told, you know, this isn't an inquisition and um, no blame will be apportioned and we're just seeking to find out what happened and establish the facts. And then they find themselves sort of subjected to what feels like aggressive cross-examining from often very experienced coroners resulting in them sort of leaving the witness box in tears and having to come back to complete their evidence. It's a difficult one as well, isn't it? Because actually, what, what recourse do you have? I mean, judicial review on the basis of bias and you know, what are the chances of you getting anywhere with that? You're pretty limited. So you really are dependent upon a coroner appreciating that the line they're taking is aggressive and not appropriate. But again, you know, if they've started out on that tack, you're going to have to interject to say something almost certainly. And that is a difficult problem uh, and one that we will face, I, I imagine, in the future. But I, I th- hopefully, as this case filters through, some of those more hardline coroners might uh, take a, a softer approach. Yeah, I think the takeaway perhaps for practitioners is know your coroner and do your research in advance and find out what lines they're likely to take so that you can prepare your witnesses or your family members if needed. Next up, we have a case that will be of particular interest to those who are instructed in inquests involving tricky medical evidence, and that is Wandsworth Borough Council and His Majesty's Coroner for Inner West London, a 2021 case. Rory, in a nutshell, what is this case about? Well, this is a, a case that highlights some of the perhaps surprising differences in establishing causation in the coroner's court and in civil litigation. It's a mesothelioma case and for those who aren't aware, mesothelioma is a, a horrible and aggressive form of cancer that's typically found in the lining of the lungs. It's incurable and leads to a swift and often painful death. It's typically associated with a long latency period between 15 to 25 years between exposure and development of the cancer. And it's often caused by exposure to asbestos. And one fibre of asbestos is enough to cause it. So due to this latency period and the fact that there can be potentially multiple sources of exposure over a person's lifetime within that period, meso cases, as they're known, have resulted in developments of the law in civil courts as regard causation in exposure cases. But turning to the facts of this case, in 1984, asbestos had been detected in the council's flat. Mrs. Johns, the deceased, and her daughter moved into the flat 12 years later, 1996. In 2003, the council instructed contractors to remove the asbestos. And while the work was being done, mum and daughter moved out. But during the works, a vacuum cleaner exploded, covering the entire flat and all the deceased belongings in a polymeric substance, which was then cleaned up and so the contractors and, and council settled the claim for damaged possessions. And deceased daughter felt pretty confident that her mother had cleaned up this mess. The deceased continued to live there until 2017, and then she moved to a new address. And uh, in July 2018, she was diagnosed with lung cancer, and she died the following month, aged 51. So terribly sad. Uh, the, the pathologist concluded that she had died of bronchopneumonia, which had resulted from malignant mesothelioma. And slightly oddly, the pathologist was called to give evidence of the pre-request review hearing and gave evidence there was an extremely strong association between asbestos dust exposure and malignant mesothelioma. 
and that he was entirely satisfied on the balance of probabilities that exposure to asbestos while the deceased had been living in the council flat had led to and caused the malignant mesothelioma from which she died. However, he didn't consider the vacuum cleaner dust explosion could have caused or contributed to the death. And the coroner was entirely satisfied that the malignant mesothelioma virtually, she said, virtually never arises without exposure to asbestos and therefore the deceased mesothelioma was caused by exposure to asbestos and that this occurred while she was a resident at the flat and that this exposure to asbestos had led to and caused her death by causing her to develop malignant mesothelioma. And a, a short narrative conclusion was given that the deceased had died from exposure to asbestos whilst resident at the flat, causing malignant mesothelioma. And so, Rory, on what basis did the council challenge that conclusion? The council challenged the conclusion on a number of bases, but essentially they argued the totality of the evidence was not enough to justify a conclusion that the deceased had developed mesothelioma on balance of probabilities as a consequence of exposure at the flat. Now, why is, why is this interesting? Well, the, the case highlights differences in establishing causation in the coroner's court and in civil litigation. So one might expect the causative thresholds to be the same regarding exposure to a dangerous substance, in this instance, asbestos, but it's not. So in civil proceedings, it's not necessary to establish that a particular exposure to asbestos was responsible for causing mesothelioma. So following the decision of the House of Laws of Fairchild and Glen Haven, liability falls on anyone who has materially increased the risk of the victim contracting the disease. It's a policy decision of the courts. In Wandsworth, the Divisional Court emphasised that the Fairchild principle of material increase in risk being determinative of causation has no application in coronial investigations where it is clear that the relevant event must make an actual and material contribution to the death of the deceased. So what the Divisional Court held was that the appropriate test in the coroner's court is the Tainton test, which practitioners may be familiar with, that whether on balance of probabilities the conduct in question more than minimally, negligibly or trivially contributed to the death. So in this instance, there's a very clear distinction in the causation test between the civil and coronial proceedings in a civil claim in relation to mesothelioma only necessary to show the defendant materially increased the risk of the victim contracting the disease, whereas the test is stricter in coronial proceedings where it must be shown on balance of probabilities that the event made an actual and material contribution to the death. One to bear in mind for anyone dealing with medical negligence in inquests. Next is Morn. Listeners will be familiar with the effect of the November 2020 judgment in Morn and His Majesty's Senior Coroner for Oxfordshire, which lowered the burden of proof for suicide and unlawful killing conclusions. The Chief Coroner has published revised guidance on this and Kieran is going to tell us all that we need to know. Yes, so it's in the Chief Coroner's Law Sheet number 1, uh, Unlawful Killing, so it was published last September and it basically restates the law post-morn, so all conclusions in coronial inquests, whether narrative or short form, are to be determined on the civil standard of proof, i.e. the balance of probabilities. Um, as listeners no doubt will be aware, before morn, suicide and unlawful killing had to be proved to the criminal standard, so beyond reasonable doubt. Or another way of putting it is that the jury or the coroner had to be sure that all the elements were satisfied. But Morn changed this. 
The guidance goes on to say unlawful killing may only be returned as a conclusion when the coroner or jury is satisfied on the balance of probabilities, more likely than not, that a death was caused by the criminal offences of murder, manslaughter or infanticide. The other useful bit is that it notes that before Morn, if multiple conclusions were being left to a jury or a coroner, it was important that unlawful killing or suicide were considered first because they had a higher standard of proof. So juries would be told in their directions, you need to consider these conclusions first and then go on to consider, for example, accident or natural causes. The guidance says that it's no longer as important for these conclusions to be considered first because the standard of proof is the same for all of them. But it does say because of their intrinsic gravity, it will usually remain sensible to consider unlawful killing before suicide, if applicable, and either or both of these short-form conclusions before any other potential short-form conclusions. So basically, the position's effectively the same as it was before, but it's not quite so rigid. So there might be circumstances if you wanted to argue that certain conclusions ought to be considered first. There is more wiggle room in the guidance. The rest of the guidance is, I think, really unchanged. It provides guidance as to the elements of the various offences and other quirks which may arise in unlawful killing cases. Next, we're moving on to a case called Gorani. The background of this case concerned a man, Mr. Silaj, who took his own life very shortly after he'd been disciplined and dismissed at work. In the year before his death, he had been receiving psychiatric treatment for stress, anxiety and depression from his GP and the home treatment team at his local mental health NHS trust. In the week before his death, Mr. Silaj's family had sought help from the single point of access at that local trust. The call was not triaged, as it ought to have been, and so he was never spoken to. However, the following day, Mr. Silaj saw his GP, who assessed him and referred him for psychotherapy. The following day, he was dismissed at work, and sadly he fell to his death from a fifth-floor balcony four days later. The judgment of the divisional court makes for interesting reading and there is quite a lot to unpack in it, not least Oberter comments on the application of Article 2 and the effect of a coroner adopting a non-neutral position in a judicial review. However, we are going to focus on one aspect which I think is particularly interesting and that is the potential divisibility of Article 2 in Article 2 inquests, which Rory is going to tell us about. Yeah, so as you say, I mean, this this case concerns so many d- different points that were up for review, but in respect of Article 2, one of the important points was that Article 2 being engaged by one aspect of a case does not mean that every aspect of a case must be investigated by applying the Article 2 methods. So when Article 2 is engaged, it's not the whole investigative process of the inquest that is affected, but only the investigation of the matters which may have amounted to a breach of Article 2. Now, why is this important to practitioners? So the, the coroner's power to include a wider in what circumstances aspect to an inquest's conclusion is limited by statute to circumstances where this is necessary to avoid a breach of any convention right, Section 5.2, Coroner's and Justice Act 2009. So where this applies, as confirmed in Garani itself, a coroner may express a view on or where there is a jury, leave to the jury matters which are only possibly rather than probably causative of death. So if the investigative obligation is limited, then so too presumably is the wider causal test. So practitioners and the coroner will have to carefully delineate between potential causes of death which engage Article 2 and those which do not. 
the former could be left to a jury or subject to a determination whether probable or possible causes, whereas the latter, at the discretion of the coroner, but the, the latter would be confined to probable, not possible causes. So as the practitioner looking at what submissions you're going to make, you're going to have to try and work out where it applies, to what aspect it applies and to what aspect it doesn't in terms of potentially the submissions you're making as to what is left to a jury. Yes, I certainly think it's going to make submissions more complicated where there are multiple IPs. I'm sure all three of us have been involved in inquests where there are well over half a dozen other interested persons and limiting one's own client's involvement in a potential Article 2 breach, I think is all the more complicated, particularly in psychiatric death cases where a lot of the work is multidisciplinary and overlaps. Finally, we're going to do a rapid fire round. My contribution to that is that the Supreme Court has recently finished hearing the appeal in Maguire and His Majesty's Senior Coroner for Blackpool and Filed, a case which was covered in previous blog posts and on this podcast. So I definitely encourage listeners to watch out for that judgment once that's handed down. Kieran, you wanted to let listeners know about a case called Maze and His Majesty's Senior Coroner for Kingston upon Hull and East Riding of Yorkshire. Why is that case of interest? Yes. So very briefly, it's a psychiatric case. The deceased was assessed for an inpatient admission. It was decided that she didn't need one. It came to light after the inquest had been concluded that after the decision to not admit the deceased, her CPN had had a conversation with a psychiatrist in the car park and raised concerns about the assessment which had led to her not being admitted. The court concluded that the fresh evidence available might reasonably lead to the conclusion that the full facts concerning the circumstances leading to the deceased's death had not been revealed and therefore an order for a fresh inquest was necessary and desirable. The court went on to say the evidence regarding the car park conversation was relevant and potentially highly material, but then said while it might be unlikely that a fresh inquest would substantially alter the coroner's conclusions that the deceased death could have been prevented absent significant failings by the NHS Trust, it could lead to additional findings of fact and full findings about the conversation might contribute to lessons being learned. So particularly I thought that last comment that even though the conclusions may not have been any different, it was still important to order a fresh inquest because of the potential for new factual findings. I think that was particularly interesting and very useful. I think particularly for those acting for interested persons such as healthcare providers, they would be particularly interested to read this and just a sort of warning, I guess, to make sure, you know, as upfront as is possible to be at the inquest because it's pretty unsatisfactory that this all came to light after everything had been concluded. And Rory, I think you're going to tell us where things currently stand on the ever-evolving picture of funding. Listeners may recall that the House of Commons Justice Committee published a report in May 2021 calling for a number of fundamental reforms to to be made to the service. But but the one we're most interested in is that, that there's an equality of arms when it comes to legal representation between public bodies and bereaved people and that's often my experience and one of the recommendations was that for all inquests where public authorities are legally represented make sure that non-means tested legal aid or other public funding for representation is also available for the people that have been bereaved now the government agreed with that in part they responded that the government remains of the view that the inquest process is intended to be inquisitorial and that legal representation should not be necessary at all inquests. 
We agree that there are some cases where representation should be granted, and these are currently funded through our ECF scheme. We agree that in these cases, access to legal aid should be as simple and easy for bereaved families as possible, which includes limiting the burdens of financial means assessment. So happily, from January this year, bereaved families at Inquest can now apply for legal representation through exceptional case funding without means testing. What's the practical effect of these changes? Well, now, bereaved people facing Article 2 inquests will no longer face the intrusive and protracted means test application process. And funding is available to more families who previously faced paying you know, huge costs towards legal representation or, in reality, having to find a solicitor willing to take a punt on a case on a, on a CFA. So in theory, this should help ensure more bereaved families can meaningfully participate in the inquest process. But what it doesn't address, it doesn't meet the committee's recommendation that the government should ensure the bereaved families at all the inquests where the state is represented or involved are publicly funded for their legal representation. Now, practitioners in this area will know that the vast majority of cases are not ECF funded yet the state is invariably legally represented. This is certainly true of the vast majority of cases of suspected clinical negligence uh, that don't involve suicide. So a tiny proportion of families have access to legal representation as solicitors are quite understandably unwilling to take inquests on a conditional fee agreement basis as the process of information gathering and expert reporting to assess prospects is unlikely to be concluded before an inquest starts, bearing in mind an inquest is supposed to be heard within six months of the death. So the process of taking the initial instruction, gathering records, instructing experts and reporting is is often not concluded in time. So in reality, often bereaved families are not represented where public bodies are. Um, But there is certainly a positive move in terms of the removal of the means testing for the ECF cases. I think it's worth bringing it back to Morahedden, which we discussed at the beginning, because in that case, the link between the phenomenon of sort of increased judicial review challenges to Article 2 engagement decisions and the lack of funding for bereaved families in non-Article 2 decisions was made. And so at paragraph 8 of the Court of Appeal decision in Morahedden, the court noted that Mr. Bowen KC for the appellant in that case was candid about the underlying reason for this phenomenon of increased challenge. And that is, as the court noted, because legal aid is not generally available for families of the deceased at an inquest. Although when Article 2 is engaged, it's more likely to become available. So I think it's interesting that there is pushback against these challenges in a context where it is so difficult for families to access legal aid funding. And as you say, this is a somewhat positive development, but not nearly enough when, as all three of us will have appeared in inquest before, certainly I have acting for an institutional interested person where the family is unrepresented and there really isn't an equality of arms there. And it's quite an unsatisfactory position for everyone to be in. Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise, is it, that, you know, if you're faced with a situation with a voluntary impatient who's committed suicide, that it's not a surprise if legal representation is obtained on behalf of the family, they're going to argue that Article 2 is engaged in order to get that funding. So I, I imagine, notwithstanding the, the Court of Appeal's comments on this issue, that this will continue to be a, a source of argument and debate in a lot of inquests going forward.
particularly where it's the difference between having legal support, having none. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast, hurtling through those cases and providing our listeners with all of your analysis. As usual, we will include a link to all of the cases, updates, developments and guidance that was referenced in today's podcast. And all it remains for me to do is to say thank you very much to you both. Thanks, Emma. Thank you, Emma. LawPod UK is presented by Emma-Louise Fenelon and produced by One Crown Office Row.